This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I was just getting distracted by some CCTV footage um, I could see um, on Sky in the background. Obviously, our analysis is going to be a lot better than theirs. And we will be talking about the manhunt. Very, very dramatic. Um, on this dramatic evening, I am joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? Very well, Michael. You you had me scared for a moment. I thought we had intruders here at Navarra Media, and that uh, you know our security team had uh, had found somebody. But it's it's a it's alas not us who is looking for somebody. The security breaches have not been at Navarra Media this week, thankfully. Um, that's not the only story we're going to be covering tonight. Also, how the government have come up short with offshore wind. Will Jeremy Corbyn run for London Mayor? And the latest mask off moment from Home Secretary Suwala Bravman, as if we needed another one. Straight into our first story. In the last hour, we've had an update on the hunt for the terror suspect, Daniel Khalif, who escaped from Wandsworth Prison on Wednesday. This is Dominic Murphy, the Met's counter-terrorism commander. I'm pleased to say that thanks to the support of the media and the public, uh, we've had a confirmed sighting of Daniel Khalif uh, coming out from underneath the lorry near Wandsworth Roundabout. So that's Trinity Road as it goes into Swandon Way. Uh, Daniel was spotted then walking towards Wandsworth Town Centre along uh, Swandon Way. And where has that come from, that information? So that is a call directly from a member of the public, okay. thanks to the appeal work that we've been doing with, with the media. So, so that just to be clear, this member of the public saw him getting out from under the lorry yes. and then walking along. Yes. Uh, do you think at this stage that he might have gone across uh, the common. Is that the route that he took? Have you got any other idea as to where he was? Well, he was gone? walking towards the town centre when he was last seen. So, as you can imagine, we're treating that as a significant development in the investigation. And we're continuing to focus our effort in London, but we will also look at other parts of the UK as the investigation develops today. Now, the Met have described this sighting as very significant. I mean, from my perspective, considering it happened on Wednesday morning, so soon after the guy escaped, it's rather unclear to me if we're any wiser as to where he might be now or the nature of what exactly happened. I suppose they're going to be trying to piece together CCTV if they've got him at a particular place. Maybe they can find where he went after that. Um, for now, though, let's talk about, I suppose, what we do have a little bit more certainty over or a bit more of a sense over. And let's take a few steps back to assess how we got here. So Daniel Khalif is a 21-year-old former British Army soldier who was awaiting trial for free offences related to terrorism and espionage. Those accusations include that he placed a fake bomb in his barracks in Stafford in January this year, that he obtained data from a Ministry of Defence personnel system in August 2021, which could have been useful to a terrorist, and that, more generally, he had been collecting or communicating data that could be useful to an enemy. Now, the enemy is uh, widely reported as being Iran. What's somewhat confusing here to me is the idea that you would both be a spy and plant a fake bomb. If you're trying to remain low profile, that would be a slightly odd thing to do, but we will come back to that later on. For now, how did um, Khalif escape? This is what the BBC could tell us on the evening it happened. The austere facade of Wandsworth Prison tonight, the jail at the centre of one of the most embarrassing escapes since the 1990s after a former soldier facing serious charges of threats to the state broke out by simply hitching a ride underneath a food delivery van. This morning he was working in the kitchen at Wandsworth Prison when at 07.50 he escaped through the main gate by hanging onto the underside of a food delivery van. 
a nationwide manhunt began immediately, but at 15.30, counterterrorism detectives decided they needed to go public, appealing for help in tracking him down. Now, that sighting of Khalif we heard about this afternoon is still the only bit of information we know about his potential whereabouts, the only time that we know the public have come up with some useful information for the police. Um, There has, though, been plenty of time for interested parties to question how he was able to escape in the first place. Ian Acheson is former head of security at Wandsworth Prison. This is a very serious breach of security, and it throws up a number of, of questions. I mean, firstly, what was this man doing in Wandsworth Prison? Wandsworth is a Category B um, reception and resettlement prison, so it's not an obvious place for somebody who's been charged under terrorism offences who uh, is a potential national security risk. And there are also questions as to why Khalif was given a job working in the prison kitchen. David Shipley is a former prisoner-turned-writer who said this on LBC. The kitchen jobs were very, very desirable and very hard to come by. Um, they there's, there's not that many of them. You get to be out of your cell all day. Uh, you have as much food as you want. You have the access to additional food to trade with other prisoners. So they're probably the most desirable jobs in the prison. But also, um, they're the job which puts you nearest getting out. So it's, it's crazy that you'd put someone in who there who's a flight risk. That crazy decision has led to some to speculate Khalif's escape could be an inside job. This morning, Met Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley was asked by Nick Ferrari about that possibility. Really pre-planned. I mean, he, so the, the fact he could, um, the fact he could strap himself onto the b- b- bottom of the wagon. I mean, there's obviously some logistics involved inside. The, working... These straps were pre pre-made, were they? I'm not going to talk about the detail, but the fact that the, just to work out a prison escape and how you can do the logistics of it and get the right equipment and how you're going to do it is not is unlikely to be something you do on the spur of the moment. Can you confirm notebooks were found in his cell? I, I'm not going to go into that detail. detail okay. you know, you I'll know keep that. going. And I understand. Can you give a comment on the possibility it might be an inside job, as it's called? So we're going to have to look at everything from uh, uh, as part of this investigation. Did he do this on his own? Did anyone inside the prison help him? Did anyone outside so the prison So that's a live investigation. It could uh, be an inside could, job. Did, so we, it's, a, it's a question. It, did anyone inside the prison help him? Other sort of other, other prisoners, um, uh corrupt guard staff was he helped by people outside the uh, outside the walls or was it simply um uh, all of his own uh, all of his own creation regardless of whether Khalif's escape was the result of cock-up or conspiracy there is a renewed focus on the dire state of britain's prison estate thanks to over a decade of austerity there are 10 percent fewer prison guards than there were in 2010 and that's compounded by the fact that the most experienced officers keep leaving the profession. Newsnight spoke to Stuart Weddle, a former prison officer of 30 years. When I joined, like I said previously, it was a a career for life. Now, when they recruit people, they just seem to come in for a couple of years and then leave. So the turnover of staff is absolutely phenomenal. So, I mean, you know, years and years ago, you had to do four years on a landing, working with prisoners before you are even considered for promotion. And now you can join the job, six months, you can be promoted. And these new staff are learning the trades off of new staff. So there's no experience because they've just decimated the old staff. Newsnight also spoke to a current prison guard at Wandsworth who confirmed what that former guard was saying. 
I've been working at Wandsworth for years, and we used to have big, bulky and experienced officers, but those guys have been replaced by young men who look like kids and don't really know what they're doing. They ask prisoners what they should be doing, like what time should I let them out and stuff. It's a joke. I'm surprised people don't escape all the time. So why are prison officers leaving the service in such high numbers? Well, this ITV report from last year gives some clues. The sort of trauma and abuse that prison officers faced on a daily basis was absolutely horrendous. Um, and there was a joke that, you know, we were all there as prisoners because we were forced to be there. But the poor officers obviously had to be there through choice. Um, and you could see that a lot of them were choosing just, just to leave, in some cases after a matter of a few weeks. Add to that fact that prisoners aren't doing anything today except just being locked in their cells. So the idea is that they're supposed to get out their cells and do some kind of purposeful activity like education or training or exercise. None of that's happening because of the overcrowding and because of the lack of staff. And it means when they're let out of their cells for a short amount of association, it's always guaranteed to lead to violence. When you have lower staffing levels, the relationships between staff and prisoners is, is compromised. Violence and safety issues increase. Staff leave or staff sickness increases. And so it becomes this vicious cycle. It is a perfect storm. And people don't want to work in really challenging, complex, unsafe places. That was Chris Atkins, a former prisoner and now a podcaster, and then Andrea Albert, who's president of the Prison Governors Association. Um, Aaron, lots to talk about. Um, uh, a new sighting of this person. As I say, I'm not sure if that leaves us any wiser as to what might have happened here. And then a big political fallout about the fact that this is just another aspect of, of public life in Britain or public services in Britain, which have completely collapsed under the Conservatives. Um, and now we seem to be seeing some of the more dramatic results. Just crazy, Michael. And, you know, it, it bears repeating, even though it sounds like we say it pretty much every day here in our life. Absolutely everything in this country is, is collapsing because of neoliberalism. And that is inherent to the recruitment and staffing model with regards to not just prisons, but hospitals, schools to some extent, uh, support staff in universities, absolutely everywhere. Okay. When you take out the ethos of public service, when you see people's living standards collapse over years and decades, when you remove the capacity of these kinds of jobs and careers, uh, being able to get people on the housing ladder, you can't build a society when you do that. And we've been, been doing that for a very long time. That's the first point. The second one is, Michael, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. This man escapes at before 8 a.m. You know, the early bird gets the worm. Certainly true here. He is out of that prison before 8 a.m. And I believe you said the police don't notify anyone until gone three o'clock that same day. So he had the best part of eight hours, eight hours to get as far away from HMP Wandsworth as he could, potentially to change his identity, potentially to reach out to, to handlers or God knows who. And there doesn't seem to be any scrutiny or overhead with regards to that. You, you, you've not just lost a, you know, like a, a, a regular prisoner. So we can talk about the fact that why was somebody who is potentially in, involved in espionage for a front part, why are they in HMP Wandsworth? And it's a very good question. Category B prison. But given the nature of this person and his escape, what, why did it take eight hours for him to notify the public? I know it's embarrassing for them. I mean, it's going to be even more embarrassing if the guy doesn't get caught. Eight hours is a huge head start. Um, and I, I don't know what you, you, you think or perhaps what you've read about this, Michael, but that seems to me the most avoidable cock-up of all here. One would imagine that when it comes to sort of 
police announcements about these kind of things, there must be some balance between causing panic among the public and then using the public to try and catch someone, right? So I suppose if if they think that potentially they could have got a handle on it pretty quickly um, w- without alarming everyone, um, they could have said there was some sort of public interest in not telling people. One would also imagine, yeah, I, I assume them being somewhat embarrassed also played a role here. Um, it does seem to me though, I, mean, I suppose if, they, if they'd went public straight away, you know, now we all know what this guy looks like because we've been seeing pictures of him for 48 hours. It would seem... You know, it would be somewhat surprising to me if the guy appears on Sky News at, you know, 9.30 and someone's found him by 10.30. Although I suppose, you know, the earlier you show people, yeah, the more likely you will be to catch the guy. So very much a a reasonable point. And I think you're probably right that it's been under-discussed. Let's look at some more details on on Khalif. I mean, it is is an interesting story. It's got some very strange angles to it. And we actually have some more details via the BBC because they've spoken to a prisoner who worked in the kitchen um, with Khalif. He's called Chris Jones. He was on remand for seven months before being acquitted. Um, it's a long time to stay in prison if you're going to get acquitted in the end. Um, the BBC writes this about their discussion with him. An inmate who worked with escapee Daniel Khalif in the kitchens at HMP Wandsworth has told the BBC he said he was going to be famous. So Khalif said he was going to be famous. Well, he certainly is now. Um, he said Mr. Khalif had been brought in as a vulnerable prisoner to work alongside other inmates in the kitchen. They go on to say this. He told the BBC that his fellow prisoner seemed quite down to earth and up for a laugh, but it didn't come across, he didn't come across as a criminal mastermind. Mr. Jones added, quote, he did seem like an odd sausage. One lunchtime he came in saying that he was going to be famous. I told him, I think you've got on the wrong bus, mate. He would come to work with a comb and mirror constantly checking his appearance, although I can't say I thought much of it. Uh, Lots of people on Twitter seem to think he's not doing too badly on the appearance front. Um, let's go to a quote, uh, another quote from Chris Jones, who said he was surprised, um, but not surprised, um, that this escape had happened. Um, and he told the BBC, we always used to joke about that lorry, jump in it and drive off. But there was a lot of security staff around the kitchen, so it is a surprise he got through there. A prison staff member would stand by the lorry, ticking off the goods as they were unloaded. You could not move around freely. If you wanted to move from the coffee shop to the kitchen, the staff would log a move. Having said this, many mistakes were made all the time, all down to staffing issues. One time we were put on lockdown because there was an inmate missing, but it turned out that he had been released the day before, but it hadn't been correctly registered. So in that sense, I'm not surprised that someone slipped up or that they didn't have enough people to staff the kitchen and that he took his chance to unload the truck and vanish underneath the lorry. I suppose a number of things to to say here. Very briefly, I want to just say, you know, this... This bit of testimony from this person who was on remand, right? So he was ultimately acquitted, spent seven months in prison. This idea that prisoners are constantly under lockdown because someone's gone missing, from the commentary I've seen and sort of from, you know, people who worked in prisons talking about this and ex-prisoners talking about this, it does seem like the understaffing in prisons means that, you know, constantly prisoners are just locked up in their room for, for 22 hours a day or put under lockdown because no one has a clue what's going on right? A, a well-functioning prison, you know, you're thinking of a Norwegian prison or something, right? You get to go out of your cell in the day, try and do some productive activity, maybe reform yourself, um, become a productive member of society when you're released. If you've got an understaffed prison, um, one, it's a lot more dangerous, as you sort of saw in that ITV clip earlier, why everyone's leaving the sector. If they obviously prisoners can't leave the sector, but if you're a prison guard, you can. Um, why everyone's leaving the sector is because it's incredibly understaffed, no one's been able to do sort of productive activity in there and you get these constant lockdowns, which I imagine would be very frustrating if you were a prisoner. Um, 
Beyond that, though, I want to talk more about Khalif. Um, Aaron, I think there's kind of two possibilities here. I mean, there's, there's, there's more than two, isn't there? But, but one is he is this sort of foreign asset. And because he's got some connection to a foreign intelligence service, there was a very well-organized inside job whereby you know, a, a prison officer was paid off couple of prison officers were paid off. I mean, for him to get stuck in this category B prison, maybe you need a bureaucrat to get paid off as well. You know, a, a number of people um, will have cooperated to get out this 21-year-old from, from prison. Um, and I suppose along that scenario, what one might expect is if this was very well planned, then you would assume that they also had a plan for after he escaped the prison. So it might be that, you know, the moment he was out, he could release some signal, which meant that he was taken to a port or an airport and taken out of the country and then ultimately is going to turn up in Iran and they're going to be like, haha, we got our guy back. One scenario. The other scenario is just, he's, he's, this, is, this was lucky and he's a bit of a chancer. Like he's chancer, wants to be famous um, and maybe he didn't even have a, you know, because it's possible he wasn't an asset of a foreign government. I mean, loads of things are possible, but right, if he's been charged with trying to pass on information to a foreign government, that could just be a kind of delusional thing, right? You've sort of said, oh, I, I'm going to send Iran some information, a kind of Paul Mason style where he's sort of, he's, he's found this person working for the security services. I've got information for you. Send some sort of mad spider diagrams. And they're not particularly interested. It doesn't necessarily make you an asset. It just makes you someone who's reached out to the security services. And then he got incredibly lucky, presumably somewhat smart if he strapped himself to the bottom of this, this van. Um, but which one are you... Are you sort of tending towards? He's an asset of a foreign power with very high up allies who've managed to do an incredibly well crafted inside job, or he's a kind of smart kid with, you know, delusions of grandeur who got a little bit lucky when it came to to escaping this prison. I think, generally speaking, if you have the option of a planned conspiracy with a great deal of oversight, intention, and intelligence, or or plain stupidity and and human failure and mismanagement, generally speaking, the second is the better explanation and is more accurate generally. I mean, like you say, he might turn up in in, in Tehran next to, uh, you know, Khamenei this time tomorrow, and people think, how the hell did that happen? Of course, uh, it seems improbable, but not impossible. Uh, but what I want to say, Michael, is, and this is something I think is actually very substantive, is that the idea of a mass conspiracy with somehow, you know, Iranian intelligence assets, somehow making sure he goes to Wandsworth rather than Belmarsh, or that he's doing kitchen duty, or that they help him get out. That idea that you know Iranian intelligence assets, uh, potentially even Iranian spies, have somehow um, inserted themselves in multiple parts of like the state bureaucracy in this country. That's hugely useful for the conservatives as they dismantle and disintegrate basic public services because that kind of conspiratorial thinking helps them and lets them off the hook. What I would say as well, Michael, is here's a question: How do you think? the press and the Conservative Party would react if this was happening under a Labour government. If there was a Labour Home Secretary, if there was a Labour Prime Minister, and somebody who's been charged with espionage, who may be working for a foreign power, wasn't just in a Category B prison, wasn't just on kitchen duty, but they managed to escape and nobody said anything for eight hours. What do you think would happen? Do you think the Conservatives would call for the Home Secretary to resign? Do you think the press would say that this is not good enough and really typifies how Labour can't be trusted to run the country? Can you imagine if the Prime Minister, while all of this was happening, was Jeremy Corbyn? Well, this just sums up and personifies why the left can't be trusted to deal with this country if they run things for 10 minutes. Look what happens. 
And yet, when it's under the Conservatives, there's no bigger questions asked in response to structurally, what is the explanation for this happening? When it's the left, when it's even Labour, not even left, centre, we can characterise, we have this mass meta-narrative and meta-analysis immediately, off the shelf. But with the right, with the Conservatives, well, well, you know, like it was maybe there's some Iranian spies that work at the CPS, and maybe there's some Iranian councillors who are also spies, and maybe there's loads of Iranian spies, and that's how we got out, because otherwise it's impossible, because we're so smart. Okay. That, to me, is the big takeaway here, Michael. Imagine the response to all of this if this was happening under a Labour government. What the Tories have been pointing to is that, that you know there are fewer prison escapes than there used to be in the past. Um, I would assume that's more to do with sort of the preponderance of CCTV um, than any sort of genius policymaking from the top. There's also a lot less crime than there used to be in the in the you know in the in, in the post-war period, um, and that's again precisely because of technology. More CCTV is harder to steal a car. I think there are a couple of brands where everyone's stealing them, Kia and, and, and one other, but um, in general, much harder to steal a car than it used to be. Um, uh, back to the issue of prisons. Um, obviously, we've been talking a lot about um, the funding cuts to them and how that has had a negative impact both on prisoners um, and on public safety, very dramatically in this case. Um, one way um, to improve standards, of course, to, to reverse that, to increase staffing levels. Another is to reduce the number of prisoners. And Britain does have a historically high number of people behind bars. This chart shows the prison population in the UK since 1900. As you can see, the prison population grew steadily from the 1940s. It then skyrocketed in the 1990s, going from less than 50,000 in 1992 to almost 100,000 by 2008. Um, since then, it has declined slightly. However, it's set to rise again, according to the government's own projections. The prison population in England and Wales is set to increase from 84,000 today to 94,000 by March 2025. And they project it will be between 93,000 and 106,000 by 2027. The explanation given for that projected increase references two things. Firstly, an increase in the number of police officers, meaning more people are getting caught committing crime, supposedly. Um, and second, the extension of sentences for violent and sexual offences contained within the Police Crime and Sentencing Act. Um, Aaron, is another sort of big story here that we're just putting too many people in prison and that means that the more dangerous ones will be able to escape? Well, I think that's partly true. I think we do have too many people in prison. I think there are some people who aren't in prison nearly long enough, and there are some people that seem to escape it uh, almost inexplicably. You know, we we talked, I think, last week uh, about one of these um, people, who's a, a Labour councillor, Mr. Tom Dewey, who got a suspended sentence despite being in possession of the most astonishingly hardcore child sexual images. That happens a lot. Now, I said on Twitter, I've seen multiple instances of people being found guilty for this um, and not going to prison. And, and people thought I was making it up. They're like, you know, Aaron's gone all Daily Mail. No, no. And then I shared them. There's, look, literally in the last 24 hours, there's three, four stories where I've seen the exact same outcome. So those people aren't going to prison. Um, so th this idea that, you know, we, we, you know, the prison population should come down. I think there's many people who are in prison who shouldn't be in prison. Uh, but I do also think at the same time, we have a very strange, very the whole system makes no sense to me michael you know uh you can uh, steal a bottle of water during the london riots if somebody did and people say well the context was public disorder there were riots somebody got six months for stealing a bottle of water frank fernie threw a stick at a police officer during student protests he got 12 months there are people that kill other people through dangerous driving who get 12 months how are those two things the same so i you know frankly i've got absolutely no faith or trust in the criminal justice system in this country 
I think the police are a joke. I think the CPS is a joke. I think many judges are a joke. You saw recently Just Up Oil, one of their activists got three years for a banner drop. The banner drop didn't stop the, the traffic, by the way. The police stopped the traffic. He got three years for that, Michael. And yet we have people who are escaping prison sentences who are pedophiles. Uh, the mind really boggles. Uh, I think the way you would, you, would, you would address a lot of this is, like you said, uh, said a few minutes ago, you didn't say this explicitly, but a, a well-run, well-managed prison system like Norway, where, yes, far more is spent per prisoner, but you have far lower rates of recidivism. I, I think that would be a big part of the puzzle. I think you probably have to decriminalize certain drugs, certainly possession of them. Um, but there is, we're in a very strange time in this country at the moment, Michael, where some people get these really long prison sentences and you think, that doesn't seem justified at all. Then you see other stories about people doing the most awful things, escaping prison altogether. So, and look, this works both ways because the left bashes some of the, some of those decisions, and the right bashes some of those other decisions. And actually, they're probably both right most of the time. Uh, so it's a little bit more complicated than just simply reducing prison populations. I think reoffending is absolutely something which needs to be cut, should be cut. But that will take money. Sadly, the default in politics in this country for the last several decades has been headlines and pleasing whatever billionaire tax dodging media moguls want rather than intelligent policy. And that's not just from the Tories, by the way. That has to change. Otherwise, this problem will, will, will simply not go away. Let's go to our next story. Offshore wind power is a central element of Britain's plan to get to net zero. So it's unfortunate that in the latest round of auctions for contracts to produce the stuff, the government received zero, yes, zero bits. The Financial Times explained what happened. Renewable energy projects in the UK are supported by the so-called contracts for different system, in which the government agrees to guarantee developers a fixed price for the electricity they sell from the projects they are developing. But developers warn that the maximum price on offer in this year's round for those contracts was not enough to get offshore wind projects off the ground. The sector has been struggling with rising costs of labour and turbines and high interest rates. So what this means, they haven't set the price high enough for the contracts for difference auctions. And that means that this year's auctions will bring on no new offshore wind power. That's a fact made stark in this chart from The Economist. The amount of future wind power secured in these auctions has been rising year on year since they began in 2014, except this year, where, as we say, they decline to zero or nil, as is put in that graph. Now, as you may have noticed, this story is all rather technical. What is a contract for difference? I hear you asking. Luckily, We've got an expert to make sense of it. Chris Hayes is an economist and data analyst at the think tank Commonwealth. Chris, to get us going, what the hell are contracts for difference? Well, yeah, CFDs, contracts for difference, are basically like a, a planning pro process um, that aims to encourage investment in renewable energy. Um, but obviously, if you're going to invest in building out a wind farm or a solar farm or whatever, um, the investors need reassurance that the energy they eventually produce is going to fetch an adequate price um, so it generates a return that, uh, that they deem worthwhile because um, otherwise it's too risky. So, you know, the CFD auctioning process agrees a fixed price for, you know, 15 years or so. Um, and then that fixed price needs to be high enough to guarantee uh, that, uh, that return, that profit margin that they deem necessary for their investment. So, you know, in other words, it's about de-risking the returns of private investors. Is this the same as what's sometimes called a feed-in tariff? So you sort of say, if, if, if you provide wind energy to the system, we'll, we'll give you X amount of pounds for each gigawatt, and that means that you can be confident that you're going to make a profit. Yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. It's, um, it's, it's a more recent uh, policy development that aims to do the same kind of de-risking job, um, but just like subtly different. And um, 
usually applies to bigger projects. So what has exactly gone wrong here? Is it as simple as the, the government didn't set the price high enough and so no one wants these contracts and that means that we're not going to have any new offshore wind power built over the next 12 months? Is that, uh, am I oversimplifying this? Well, yeah, more than 12 months. Um, yeah, basically, um, in order to encourage competition, to keep costs low, um, that kind of cost discipline, um, the auctions revolve around like a price cap, like a maximum um, price that the government sets at the beginning. But the the maximum that prevailed was one it was set a while ago. Um, since then, we've obviously seen a fair bit of inflation. You know, the materials are more expensive. There are supply chain bottlenecks. Um, also, more importantly, um, the financing costs have gone up massively because interest rates are going up. Um, so it means that in light of those new circumstances, uh, the maximum price that they were allowed to bid for has been too low to generate sufficient profits uh, for, for them to actually um, invest. It's not clear that uh, with this price that they would be loss-making. They may still be profitable, but the profit margins would not be enough um, for the investors to want to part with their cash when they can take it elsewhere. I think that's the main point to bear in mind. I mean, I often hear when sort of energy mixes are being discussed or sort of people are promoting renewable energy. They say, look, you're, if you want to build new gas or oil or whatever, you're living in the past because it's, it's the case now that, or build gas or oil power plants, I should say. It's the case now that renewable energy is the cheapest energy around. Nothing is cheaper than wind power. Nothing is cheaper than solar power. If that is the case, why do we still need sort of government intervention to guarantee a certain price to these producers? Why is it not yet just, you know, competitive in the normal market economy to produce solar or wind power? Yeah, it gets a bit technical because um, um, it is cheaper overall, but the cost is all upfront. You know, you build it um, and then once you've built it, uh, the actual marginal cost of each additional unit of electricity is basically zero. Um, but then if you were to sell that um, uh, on competitive spot markets, which is like selling it in real time, you might end up accidentally pushing the prices like really, really low. Um, so there have been moments when we've had like negative prices, um, and obviously that's you know, dysfunctional. So this is just a way of like stabilizing the system by doing a little bit of you know price fixing, basically. Um, so it's 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 more price fixing than it is a subsidy. Um, but uh, and it, that's and that's a price fixing that's needed to like uh, bypass the dysfunction that's inherent in like real time market trading. That makes sense. If, if, if all the costs are up front, you need a bit more guarantee into the future because you know, otherwise you're not going to be willing to take that risk right now. Um, should the response be purely to, 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 to raise um, the price that these companies are allowed to bid their energy for or that they can sort of secure a contract for? Or I understand Commonwealth think there would be a better solution to make sure that we get more offshore wind power um, coming on stream. A lot of people are, are saying that you should just raise the price cap. Um, and if you are going to in, insist on like relying on private investment to, um, you know, to, to fulfill the whole energy transition, then yeah, you should. Um, although that obviously will have to be paid for ultimately by us. Um, there's a pretty obvious alternative. You could just um, do direct public investment um, through a publicly owned energy generation company. You know, that would be, it would be cheaper which would mean ultimately lower bills. Um, it could be coordinated centrally and much more coherently. Um, and I think, you know, more importantly, as we've learned today, it wouldn't get derailed every time it encounters a little bit of uncertainty. Um, 
you know, it's noteworthy that all of the countries that are furthest ahead in the clean energy race have all got some form of state-owned enterprise that is pioneering their clean energy, whether that's you know, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, or, or indeed France or Costa Rica. Um, so rather than bending over backwards to try and get private capital to invest, to, you know, to undertake investments that you already know are necessary, why not just do it yourself? I, think. I mean, I suppose one answer would be, do we have the, well, I suppose the government just tells us year after year, the, the, the British state uniquely can't do anything. Maybe, maybe state-owned enterprises in Scandinavia can do it. Maybe state-owned enterprises in China can do it. But we, our, our bureaucrats are uniquely incompetent that we couldn't possibly do it ourselves. Um, I suppose, you know, it's not quite a question. What I want to put to you, what you're suggesting, is that what Labour are putting forward with their great British energy company? Will they be doing sort of direct investment in, in offshore wind? I mean, it's, it's not entirely clear, right? We're still waiting to find out. Um, it could be that GB Energy turns out to be just another vehicle of using um, the public balance sheet to de-risk further private investment. So, for example, there are loads of like speculative technologies like tidal energy, uh, floating wind, um, where they're still very risky, and you know the state might use this use its risk capacity um, to prove that it's a viable technology, and then private capital will come in and take all the profits. In which case, you're just socialising the risk and privatising profit. Or it may turn out to be a much more um, direct interventionist thing where you're actually like uh, expanding the scale of technologies that have already been proven and therefore recouping like a lot of the, uh, the gains that, um, that you know can be made. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know about like the UK state being administratively uniquely incompetent. We've you know, done it in previous cases. These are all privatized um, uh, these are um, entities that have been privatized from a, a, a state of being previously nationally owned. Let's go to our next story. A new poll from The Times suggests that if Jeremy Corbyn runs to be London mayor, it could cost Sadiq Khan his re-election. So these are the polling results. They've got a poll without Corbyn, um, where Sadiq Khan beats Susan Hall by only one point, so 33 to 32 points. And then they've got a poll if Corbyn runs. I mean, in that case, Jeremy Corbyn wins 15% of the vote. Sadiq Khan gets 25% and Susan Hall gets 30%. So if he runs, this Times poll suggests Susan Hall would become London mayor. The Times also reports this. Some 43% of London voters think Jeremy Corbyn should stand for the mayoralty and 37% say he would make a good mayor. So he's not sort of as unpopular as Keir Starmer sometimes tries to make out, at least in London. I suppose this has been sort of promoted as, you know, will Jeremy Corbyn split the vote and lose the London mayoralty for, for Labour? Is there any chance of that happening? I think it's unlikely. I think he would do better than 15%, however. I think if if there was genuinely the sense that actually there would be a tipping point, right? If there were opinion polls showing him higher than Khan, which you have to get there first, I think lots of people who would vote for Khan but would like to vote for Corbyn would go to Corbyn. I think in inner London, he is a very, very popular politician. He just is. You know, you look at the seats that uh, Labour picked up in 2019 when they got hammered in the rest of the country, they picked up Putney. They saw majorities and loads of uh, London seats go up. Places like Chingford, you know, which is actually out of London. Now, I understand a lot of that wasn't to do with Jeremy Corbyn. They might have liked the policy or there were former Tory voters who wanted to stop Brexit or whatever. Uh, but a significant amount was. Now, in the sort of donut, the outer London, which is where the Tories have built their vote historically, is how Boris Johnson beat Ken Livingstone twice. 
yes, of course, he'll be less popular. I think the Tories are going to pick up lots of votes there anyway, partly because of historic reasons. They've always been more popular, partly because of the unpopularity around the expansion of ULEZ. So I, I think Jeremy Corbyn could do better than 15%. I don't think he will stand. I could be wrong, famous last words. I think if Livingston stood, then Jeremy Corbyn could absolutely stand. But I don't see why he would give up on being a constituency MP, which he clearly loves um, in Islington for this, which is very high risk, very low return, frankly. It's not like the London mayor has massive powers. Um, so I don't know, although it would be rather funny to have a, a, a London Labour mayor who's Jeremy Corbyn taking on Keir Starmer, who's the, the prime minister. Dare I say, I can imagine a Labour government actually reducing the powers of the London mayoralty. I think it would also be, it would be just interesting because it would just trigger all the right people. It would trigger all the right people because these lunatics in, in the political and media class tried to present Jeremy Corbyn, who has, broadly speaking, quite anodyne social democratic views when it comes to the domestic economy and domestic public services, which is all he'd be involved with as London mayor. They tried to present him as almost a domestic extremist, you know, out, outlandish. I saw a, a, a Twitter screen grab the other day, Ben Kentish, who pretends to be a serious journalist over at LBC, when he was previously, I think, at The Independent 2018, tweets an article, was Jeremy Corbyn an asset for the, you know, for the Czechs during the Cold War? These people are clowns. It would be great if Jeremy Corbyn came out of, you know, uh, obscurity to some extent, came back to the forefront of the national political, political conversation and, and made sure these people put their clown shoes back on. People like Ben Kentish should have to put on the makeup, put on the wig, put on the nose. Get the old flower, the old uh, squirty birdie flower. Great. That would be very gratifying and satisfying to see. However, uh, I, I think if he did stand, it would clearly increase the possibility of, of the Conservatives winning. Uh, and I, I have to push back a little bit on this poll because this Redfield and Wilton poll, which has uh, the Tory winning by, you know, with 30, it's very hard to see. I don't think there's any, I might be wrong, Michael, you can correct me. There's no precedent of anybody winning the London mayoralty with 30% of the vote, as I understand it. Obviously, now I know that's because we've had additional voting over several rounds, but that's less than a third of the vote to win. I mean, that's very rare in constituencies. Now, the reason why she'd win on that is because the Greens would get 15%, Corbyn would get 15%, and the Lib Dems would get 15%. I, I, I just don't think that would happen. I think... I think actually Sadiq Khan would have to tr have to try and squeeze those. That's 45% he would have to be looking at Lib Dems, Green, Corbyn to make up 5% of the Tories. I think he would be able to do that. From 45%, you need 5 to 6%. I think he could do that. So, um, of course, Sadiq Khan could lose. But I think if he has anything to offer Londoners at the, at the next local elections, he has anything at all. He should walk away with it. And paradoxically, despite, you know, ULEZ being this big media story, it is offering clear water between him and the Tories. So I think that's going to be very compelling if he's saying to Greens, come and vote for me. And if it's going to be 15% of them, come and vote for me. Because at the moment, pre-ULEZ, he didn't really have anything to say to Greens. Um, finally, as well, uh, I, I think more than Corbyn making life difficult for um, Sadiq Khan, Michael, is the fact that his own party's leadership has decried ULEZ and its wisdom in the national press. And I think that makes Sadiq Khan's life more difficult than anything else right now. The fact that he's going to go into the next London elections, he has to defend a policy to the London electorate, which his own party leader has basically mocked and pilloried. Completely needless, completely pointless. The Tories don't do that, by the way. You would never have a national Tory leader attack 
a successful mayor in London or any city. It doesn't happen. Because the Labour right is so factional, it's kind of inevitable. So I think that is the major reason for Khan's suffering at the moment. Uh, but I think Corbyn or no Corbyn, he should win. Uh, but this is a rather funny thing anyway. I think Jeremy's not saying anything because he likes to wind certain people in the media up and he's having a good giggle. Yeah, no, I think that's probably a correct analysis of Jeremy Corbyn's thinking. If I were a betting person, I would say he is going to stand as an independent in Islington North. He'd have a good chance of winning there. Um, I don't think he would risk the London mayoralty because, yeah, you know, the chance of winning that are, are smaller than winning in Islington North and there's also a bigger chance of splitting the vote. Um, I want to focus on this this poll without Corbyn because I think actually that's the sort of more... Um, startling element of this poll, which is quite how close it would be, even if Corbyn doesn't stand. If you look at this, Sadiq Khan on 33%, Susan Hall on 32%. And then the big problem, of course, for Khan is that you've got the Lib Dems on 16%, the Greens on 9%. So the, the progressive vote is massively split and the conservative vote isn't. So you've got the conservatives on 32% and then reform um, on only 4%. And I think what this is showing is precisely why um, the Conservatives got rid of second preference voting when it came to mayoral elections. Obviously, you know, if you've voted in a mayoral election in the past um, couple of decades, um, you will know um, you have second preference voting. So if you really wanted um, the Greens to be, you know, to get the mayoralty, but you really didn't want the Tories to get the mayoralty, you'd do Greens first, Labour second. And then if your candidate, if, you're, if the Greens weren't in the top two, then your vote would go to Labour. Right, and and that is how um, Labour have sort of won comfortable majorities. Well, I suppose actually Boris Johnson won for a while, didn't he? But when Labour have won, that, that has helped them. Those second preference voting, and absolutely, if second preference voting was still in place, Sadiq Khan would just storm home with this, right? Because you can guarantee pretty much that the majority of Lib Dems in London um, and the majority of Greens are going to have Sadiq Khan as their second preference because he's not a particularly scary um, Labour politician. If you're sort of a a liberal, um, and one would imagine that sort of London Lib Dems are going to be fairly Remainy. Um, the Conservative candidate is fairly Brexity, so he would storm away with this essentially, and that's I think the only reason why the Conservatives completely changed the rule of the game and made it first past the post. So now Tory ca Tory candidates, I mean across the country, really can can win on sort of polling around thirty percent. It is going to be possible. Um, and, and I think that's just incredibly cynical, incredibly undemocratic, because one thing that's quite nice actually about sort of mayoral elections is you could take a risk on a sort of outsider candidate. You could have the confidence to do that, knowing that you weren't going to let in a right winger. And that element of, of democracy, which is obviously more democratic than the alternative, the Tories couldn't handle because they wanted a chance of getting in on 30% because the progressive vote is, is more often split um, than the right wing vote. I suppose when UKIP and the Tories were around, somewhat different. Um, but now at least, and especially sort of in inner cities, one could say, actually in inner cities, it's especially going to be the progressive vote that's split um, because the ukip -y thing um, is more elsewhere in less urban areas. Let's go to our final story. Suella Braverman has had many mask-off moments, but this one is especially serious. It happened during a speech to the Commons on a review of the Prevent Programme. Now, the Prevent Programme is the centrepiece of the government's anti-terrorism strategy, and the context here is that the Tories have been upset as they think Prevent has focused too much on the extreme right and not enough at radical Islam. Um, this is what Braverman said. Riku has failed to draw clear distinctions between mainstream conservative commentary and the extreme right. People like my right honourable friend, the member for North East Somerset, 
and Douglas Murray express mainstream, insightful, and perfectly decent political views. People may disagree with them, but in no way are they extremists. Prevent must not risk any perception of disparaging them as such again. Riku. Um, which Bradman referred to there, is the Research, Information and Communication Unit, which produces reports and training on anti-extremism. Um, the MP for North East Somerset, she mentioned, is Jacob Rees-Mogg. The Daily Mail reported earlier this year that the unit had linked Rees-Mogg to far-right extremists. Um, Douglas Murray, who she also um, mentioned, is a right-wing author and commentator who was mentioned in a workshop delivered by the Prevent Research Unit. Now, an essay by Hope Not Hate was included in said workshop, um, and it included this passage. Just as in 1978, when Margaret Thatcher's claim that British people feared being swamped pulled the rug from under the National Front, the normalisation and mainstreaming of Islamophobia may be undermining support for the organised anti-Muslim far-right. Why face all the social consequences of supporting Stephen Yaxley-Lennon when one can vote for a Prime Minister that calls Muslim women letterboxes or read columns by Rod Little, Melanie Phillips and Douglas Murray that spread negative views about Islam and Muslims via the pages of mainstream publications? Maybe one reason the traditional far-right is so small right now is because it is simply not needed. Um, so that's the mention to Douglas Murray um, in one of these uh, sessions um, by the research unit at Prevent. Um, as for why Rhys Mogg um, might have been included in the training, this is a BBC report from 2013. This was the Black Tie Dinner at the East India Club in May, at which Jacob Rhys Mogg spoke as guest of honour, but knowledge of which has only just come to light. It's not anything he said there that has caused offence, but his presence at the traditional Britain group in the first place. The group has posted derogatory comments on its Facebook page about the recently appointed peer Doreen Lawrence. They say it's a monstrous disgrace that this Lawrence woman, who's no friend of Great Britain and who is totally without merit, should be recognised like this or in any other way. In fact, she, along with millions of others, should be requested to return to their natural homelands. Rees-Mogg later claimed that appearing at that dinner party was clearly a mistake. Douglas Murray, however, has made no such apologies for his proximity to extremism. This is from an article by Mehdi Hassan. In a February 2006 speech in Holland, Murray demanded that conditions for Muslims in Europe must be made harder across the board and all immigration into Europe from Muslim countries must stop. Douglas also told his Dutch audience that Islam in Europe should be viewed as an opportunistic infection and called for mosques accused of spreading hate to be pulled down. Now, this is the words of Mehdi Hassan. This, some might say, sounds like the language of fascism. Indeed, the speech prompted the then Shadow Homeland Security spokesperson, Paul Goodman MP, to tell Murray that the Conservative Party front bench would be cutting its ties with him. So Douglas Murray's extreme and racist statements used to get condemned by Tory ministers, yet now the Tory Home Secretary cites him as someone with mainstream, insightful and perfectly decent political views, which are in no way extremist. Aaron, I suppose, say what you like about these people being included in a prevent workshop, sort of one issue. I think what sort of stands out here is, is Braverman really praising Murray in Parliament as insightful, as sort of representing perfectly decent views, when in the very recent past, the Tory frontbench disassociated from him, and it was his think tank at the time, because of how radical he was. So does this show us sort of how far the Tories have moved to the right in that period of time? I think that's a spot-on assessment, Michael. Uh, I would also say, look, D Douglas Murray is at liberty to say what he's saying. We're a free country, we're a free society of women, to me. I, 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 don't, I think there should be a very high threshold 
to censorship. Very high. But what he's saying is clearly very extreme. Very extreme. The actions he's proposing are very extreme. So on the one hand, he wants to have his cake and to eat it, right? He wants to say, look, I think we should be able to uh, knock down mosques. We should be able to prohibit immigration from certain parts of the world. You might, he, he holds those positions. But at the same time, he wants to say, well, I'm not so extreme. I'm not arguing for such a massive detour from the status quo. No, your prescription of what's going wrong right now in the West, he talks about the strange death of Europe, one of his books, your prescription is that the status quo isn't working and that you need an extreme kind of solution to it, okay? You need an extreme kind of uh, set of actions in order to rectify the problem. Clearly, it's very extreme to say there's a religious minority, we need to start knocking down their religious buildings, we need to prohibit certain people from entering from certain parts of the world. Just is. Um, but then he wants to say, well, I'm very much a mainstream character, I don't say anything extreme, I'm perfectly normal, I'm perfectly sensible. Well, if you're a mainstream character, then you can't at the same time say I have this vitriolic critique of the status quo. You know, I would quite happily say with regards to my views that, you know, I'm a, the policies we talk about in regards to the here and now are radically social democratic. But my views on the future of capitalism and where automation takes us, I will be very happy to say are very unusual views. They are. They're very radical. They're not in the mainstream. I wish they were. Okay. You know, the idea that we might not have wage labor in sometime in the century, but because of how automation and AI are, are sort of moving and the sorts of challenges that creates, given our presumptions around work and capitalism and having to sell your labor for a wage, and if you can't, you die. You know, but those are quite strange, radical views. I hope that changes. You know, so it's really, it's really frustrating, Michael. And I, I think, I think particularly also with Melanie Phillips, you know, you can't have somebody who's quoted at length by Anders Breivik who murdered dozens of social democrats, okay? Dozens of social democrats, kids in Norway, or Toya, this getaway for the youth wing of the Norwegian Social Democratic Party. He killed those people because he thought they were extremists and Nazi, uh, uh, you know, Nazi communists, whatever he would want to use, you know? Um, so he was inspired by Melanie Phillips. He quotes her at length in his uh, manifesto, how else do you want to describe Melanie, Melanie Phillips if not an extremist? I mean, that's how I, would that's how I would describe her, Michael. You know, if you were writing something or I was writing something, uh, let's say somebody blew up 60, 70 people somewhere in this country or murdered a bunch of people in the youth wing of the Conservative Party, and then in their manifesto, I'm quoted on dozens of pages. How do you think the media would respond to that? What would they call me? What would they call me? I'd be condemned by all the parties. I'd have to recant publicly. You might agree with that. I mean, I think that would be, for me personally, if somebody murdered a bunch of people in my name, quoting me, it would, it would be, be real pause for thought. But apparently not for Melanie Phillips. You know, it's not me, Gov. So, and the, by the way, the lack of shame on her part, I find extraordinary. The fact she can go on the BBC multiple times a week. I remember seeing on the BBC twice in the space of 24 hours uh, on on. Uh, it's called, it used to be called Daily Politics, right? BBC Politics Live. And I think, um, uh, any questions? Crazy. I mean, she's an extremist. We, we have words for a reason because they describe things. That's a pretty good word to describe her. Uh, so I don't think Murray should be censored. I think you have a high threshold for censorship in a free society. But clearly, 
uh, clearly it's a, it's a pretty accurate portrayal of, of his analysis. And like you say, Michael, the big takeaway on this is just how far right the Conservative Party have moved in the intervening 17 years. On that previous point, what Douglas Murray would, I imagine, say is you, you're saying, look, look, Douglas Murray, clearly, whatever, whatever one thinks of your ideas, they are radical. I'm happy for my ideas to be called radical. Why aren't you happy for your ideas to be called radical? I imagine he'd respond and say, yeah, but would you want your uh, opinions to appear in a prevent workshop? Well, it depends on the idea, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't think I actually, I actually, what would they say? Oh, this guy thinks that automation creates the possibilities for a post-work society. That's not going to appear in a prevent workshop, is it? Because I'm not espousing hatred against the minority. Now, maybe I, if we had the hate landlords cap, right? Maybe that might do because there's a certain subsection of society um, and you can say, well, look, you're trying to intimidate them. I, I don't know. But even that is so spurious, Michael. And I think fundamentally it gets the real, it gets the real heart of the difference between the radical left and the radical right. It does. Okay. At their best, the radical left is seeking converts, not traitors. It's seeking to lift up the 99%, the working and the middle class as sociological characters, not as economic ones, because middle class gets kind of strange, talking about Marx or whatever. But people have to have to sell their labor to, to live. Um, the radical left wants to speak to those people and wants to transform society in the interest of everyone. Okay. And it understands that there's a profound connection between improving the lot of everyone and, and believing in a better public community and also enhancing the possibilities for individuals to flourish. These, these two things are intimately connected. The extreme right basically looks for scapegoats, wants to blame things going badly on, on minorities. And now, Douglas Murray that would say, well, I'm a gay man, how dare you? He's a very <laughs> lucid, eloquent man. Well, okay, Douglas, but you are looking for scapegoats. That's basically what his oeuvre his output. That's basically what it consists in. He writes a bunch of books identifying people who are to blame for things. It's the left, it's Muslims, it's immigrants. Um, that, that's not my, that's not what I do. I don't think that's in any of my books. You know, I've only written, well, I've edited one and published one. My next book is about demographic aging and the challenge that poses to all of us, whatever your views, whether you're a conservative, liberal, socialist. So I don't think we're comparable, actually. I don't think we're comparable. But I would happily accept that my views aren't mainstream, certainly. Uh, you know, he, 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 he wants to say I had this massive critique of the status quo, but at the same time, he wants to be like, oh, I'm not saying anything particularly controversial. No, you are. By essence of what you're criticizing, you have to be. To be clear, I wasn't suggesting you, your ideas are, are, are similar to Douglas Murray's in any way or form. I thought your, your argument seemed to be a bit like, well, I'm happy to be called extreme, so why aren't you happy to be called extreme? Um, but I get your point. Um, I just before we end on this, I just, do just want to sort of remind you. We've talked about this before on the show, but I do. It, it sort of shocks me every time I look it up again. So, Sibella Bravman there was was talking about this review which went into Prevent because the Tories were upset that it was sort of focusing, in their view, um, too much on the right instead of um, Islamists. And to head this review, they chose someone called William Shawcross, right? And uh, this person who's supposed to be doing this independent report into Prevent, you know, which presumably, you know, everyone in society, what we want is to have a sort of, some sort of common understanding of what extremism means. You'd imagine you'd go for someone who's a bit moderate. They went for a guy called William Shawcross. He was then director of the really far-right neocon Henry Jackson Society. Douglas Murray is also part of that, by the way. Um, and he gave a speech in 2012. This is the head of the review into Prevent, who said, Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future. I think all European countries have vastly, very quickly growing Islamic populations. So this is the guy who was sort of set up as the independent adjudicator of what should and shouldn't count as extremism. Someone who said Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future. So I think this is the most sort of blatant example 
of the way the conservatives sort of call something an independent review and then get someone who is you know viciously ideologically aligned with themselves to spew out exactly the conclusion um, they wanted that supposedly independent review to spew out um, as I say incredibly shocking and it, it never ceases to amaze me every time we do a story on this sort of how brazen it was to put this man in charge of that review um, let's wrap up there thank you Aaron for joining me tonight um, before we go though uh, can you give me a preview of an interview you did which is going out on our channel this Sunday I can indeed I uh, interviewed the one and only Grace Blakely she's back from uh, her travels overseas learning to surf She's got a new book coming out soon. We talk about some of the themes in that. And we also touch on some themes which actually the left hasn't discussed in great depth, but I think are hugely important. ESG. Uh, we talked about the likes of uh, the Gates Foundation, philanthropy and its relationship to modern capitalism, and whether or not these ideas and these undertakings are actually useful for the left, and if socialists or social democrats or even left liberals uh, should view them as positive. So a great interview, a great character. She's always got a lot to say. I can't wait for it. That's this Sunday at 6 p.m. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Have a fantastic weekend. Try and get out in the sun, wear suntan lotion, of course. Um, I got in trouble before for talking about going to a sunbed um, on this show before, which I do not recommend, um, unless it's midwinter and you're feeling especially sort of a bit down in your body. Um, but let's not open that Pandora's box again. Um, for now, um, we'll be back on Monday. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.